You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past, the podcast that delves into lesser-known histories and explores their relevance to modern issues. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking in person with Laurel Angel about her research on America's 20th century conservation movement and the missed opportunities that led it to become both exclusionary and politically polarizing. Laurel grew up living in Yosemite National Park and has herself worked as a park ranger before getting a degree in environmental law and then working on conservation policy initiatives under the Obama administration, in which she also served um, in the House on the Natural Resources Committee. Laurel is currently a doctoral candidate in history at Montana State University and remains active in local and national policy initiative targeted at creating broader and more inclusive conservation goals. So welcome, Laurel, to the Dirt on the Past. Thank you. It's great to be here at a social distance. At a social distance. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. So um, full disclosure before we start, uh, Laurel and I met in graduate school, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe five or so, um, and right away uh, I felt like I had found a, a friend and somebody with an amazing brain. We took a class with Dr. Billy Smith, who was our very first podcast, and uh, we would have these afternoon seminars, which would then lead into most of the class going out afterwards together. It was an absolutely fabulous time with an amazing group of people. Um, we continued to have some classes and work together um, with Mark Fiji's Last Best Place Collective at MSU. So it's been super fun um, working with Laurel and hearing about all her work outside of academia. Um, and so we're so excited to have her here. So thanks again, Laurel, for thanks. being here. Those are some of my best memories, too. So Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. It was. It almost made you, me you want to go I know. Back to I tried school. to lure you back yeah. in. I know. I know. <laughs> Billy has told us we were his favorite class. Really? I know. I hope he doesn't wow. say that. I know. <laughs> I like to feel special, but it was one of my very favorite courses. So I bet shout he out to Billy Smith again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you guys were. It, was, it seems like you had such a great group of people in that class. So. Yeah. Well, good. Well, good. Well, thanks, Laurel, for being here today. And Laurel, in preparation for this podcast, you shared your prospectus with us um, for your doctoral dissertation. And I was just fascinated how you began that piece with a personal recollection about your childhood. It was such an inviting way to enter this topic on the history of the American conservation movement. You grew up in Yosemite National Park, as Nancy said, in the 1970s. That must have just been Um, So amazing, so wonderful. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and how it shaped who you are and your undergraduate academic goals? Yeah. 
it was a, a pretty cool back backyard, I'll tell you that. And um, and I'm uh, thankful both to Mark Fiji and Billy Smith because they actually encouraged me to include that. And, you know, there's always a question about how, how much personal, how you, personal get. you get that. Yeah. But they really felt like that grounded um, what I was kind of setting out to do. Um, and so uh, I appreciated that encouragement because I wasn't sure if that was the way to go. But, yeah, I think, you know, my dad was an early mountaineer before it was cool. Um, in fact, uh, camping, we always used wool. I was going to um, say the different yeah, gear. The different gear. And wool. so, oh, yeah, right, if you yeah. weren't cold and miserable and wet and soggy, like you weren't, weren't camping. Doing it right. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, I, and I have a great picture of my dad that I actually reference of him uh, in that wool coat, uh, in that wool mountaineering gear. And, um, you know, for me, I grew up, my dad. Uh, sort of worship John Muir and mm. I knew that and I knew about Yosemite and I, I knew about this history of it and so um, you know growing up I was either going to get into environmental issues or become a hedge fund manager I think they go either way um, <laughs> one way but, or the other but it was definitely instilled in me very young. that a lot of what comes out of the national yeah. parks <laughs> exactly. budding hedge fund managers yeah I, would be a I have surprised. a couple of friends that I grew up with that you know are all urban now they live in the in New York City okay. yeah, they have yeah you kind of go the opposite of yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but I went to the last one room schoolhouse in California and that doesn't mean I'm old it means that they had it for, wow. for pretty late but yeah, my backyard was, the, uh, was Half Dome and growing up in that. And um, I think I mentioned in my dissertation, we always thought it was odd. The tourists would slow down to look at us, too. Yeah. Like, um, like the zoo animals <laughs> or yeah. the, the bears. We were or just the playing elk. basketball, yeah. you know. Just, what's going on? Yeah. Um, but I realized, cool. you know, uh, I had uh, good parents that reminded me how lucky I was and that that was a pretty special place to grow up. And I think, you know, Obviously, it instilled in me outdoor values, but I was always very curious about just the stories um, there. And honestly, it wasn't until coming to MSU where I did start to realize that a lot of those stories were erased, mm-hmm. um, even with those names. You know, the Awane, we'd always go to that. And um, and a few years ago, there was a, a fight over those names in Yosemite. The oh. concessionaire wanted to take back the Awani and all those names. Mm. And there was a really um, compelling article in the New York Times that said, do we really know where those names come from? And so um, that kind of resonated with me as somebody that grew up in places, you know, going to Tanaya Lake or the Awani, but really not having those stories. We had a Pioneer History Center but we didn't have uh, anything about Native American history there. Wow. So except the names, mm-hmm. that's all you had. Yeah. No context. Yep. Wow. And then the only icons I had to look up to in conservation were John Muir, which everybody will be like, well, that's pretty amazing. But as a, you know, a young woman, um, I, that's what I had. And so I only had a certain set of ideals and ideas <laughs> to look at growing up. Um, about so, what conservation is. Yeah, about was. what conservation is and was and um, and who it's for. Right. Right. And you mentioned, I, just before we move on from this, I thought you had such an interesting section in there talking about your dad being an engineer and mm-hmm. that he's part of especially this whole period of national yeah. parks where the whole point of what he was doing yeah. was to make these wild places accessible, accessible less yeah. wild, to yeah. civilize them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and my dad actually was an engineer first for the Bureau of Reclamation in the in late 19, right after the 1950s when they were building a lot of dams. And so for me, I think this has actually made me better at my conservation work because I have 
sort of a very complicated way of looking at things. And I think that's because of my dad, because he, we grew up in California and I knew all about these canals and ranches and ag. Um, and yet then after that, he moved from Bureau of Reclamation to the National Park Service and also continued to engineer roads and trails and, you know, very much this idea of making the wild accessible like you talk about. And um, so it made for, when I got to college, I remember we read Ad, Ed, Ed Abbey right Ed out of the Abbey, gate. right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, again, the only thing I had to reference. Um, another man who another, wants to just be alone in the wilderness, exactly, right? There's exactly. that, it's kind of that, mm-hmm. seems like this very American ideal perspective. Yeah. So it's interesting you read that in college. Yep. Do you remember your reaction to that? Uh, I have strong feelings against Ed Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't resonate with me. Didn't resonate. Yeah, it and just it, doesn't resonate. And for me, it made it. Uh, I felt, even though I didn't have the language at the time, that he was, you know, he would not welcome me in these areas. And I didn't understand how you could talk about completely excluding people to save them, even though I love this work because I love critters. I want to see the planet safe. I want to get that piece. But I just didn't see that that was a useful conversation. But everybody around me that I worked with in the conservation movement sort of idolized Ed Abbey, but it's an interesting person to idolize. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's so. kind of like a line from Mirror to Abbey in some ways mm-hmm. of that idea of this really yeah. empty spaces, try to have as few people as possible, yeah. and um, what is that for? And yeah. and never talking about the people that lived in those spaces mm-hmm. before. I don't think Ed Abbey ever did that. Either. Never. And yeah. ni- neither did Mirror at yeah, all. Yeah, and especially it's pretty profound when you think about where Abbey wrote from. Which is where did he know, write from? From right. four corners, from the four corners okay. area, from Utah, from Moab, from Canyonlands, from Bears Ears. Wow! Oh my gosh! You know, gosh. which is um, just full. Yeah. you can't walk anywhere without finding right. many the tribes river. down there: Navajo, Hopi, uh, Zuni, Zuni, all the all the different. So huge area, um, and so it was ironic um, yeah. in my mind. And again, I knew that at the time, but I didn't have the words or the books to look to to really think about that Mm -hmm. yeah so that's giving us a a foreshadowing of of what's to come with um where your research is going but so you so you grew up there you went to school and studied american studies left after that to join the peace corps um and then when you came back you decided to become a park ranger for a while you were in the grand canyon tell us a little bit about um, what led you to that position and then what eventually led you to leave? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I came back from the Peace Corps and still wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I actually hadn't considered being in the Park Service since I grew up in it, but it was certainly comfortable. And so I got um, actually a great position with the Student Conservation Association working first in the museum collection there oh. at uh, mm. Grand Canyon, oh, which was, was pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, during a time where they were trying to learn how to repatriate a lot of the right. um, so we're Native talking American. in the '90s, right when mm-hmm. NAGPRA's passed, and repatriation exactly. is the whole. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, yeah. So I was in there and learning a lot, um, and then yeah, just kind of fell in love with the Grand Canyon. Um, really, and al- and that's also- so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, I just think a lot of people uh, are listening like us. It just yeah. sounds like a dream job, at least for a while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And it and it still actually, to me, feels like home because it was my first um, adult kind adult. of venture. Yeah. yeah. Where uh, were you in the Peace Corps? 
Uh, I was in uh, the Seychelles, which is the club. Oh, the my score. word. And then went up to Kazakhstan. Okay, so two yeah. jackpot jobs yeah. in a row. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right, back to the Grand yeah. Canyon. <laughs> yeah, and worked in the national parks there in the Seychelles. So, wow. Um, yeah, so I, um, I was at Grand Canyon, fell in love with that, also a boy. And so was there for a while. Um, just sounds perfectly imagine. romantic for a young woman. <laughs> yeah. Grand Canyon. Yeah, <laughs> we um, should just stop the podcast. So, there. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked as a park um, uh, a park ranger, but then I also got a chance uh, because you're always when you're there, you're going from seasonal job to seasonal job. The park service is a little strange that way, but I got a chance and took it to get a permanent job with the superintendent as an assistant, one of his assistants. And from there, I got to watch firsthand sort of the fight, the big fights over Grand Canyon. And mm. so I was there during the Clinton administration, and the Secretary right. of the Interior, who was Bruce Babbitt, was from Arizona. Mm. And Grand Canyon, just like Yellowstone here, um, in fact, both of them were experiencing a lot of um, controversy at the time um, around just park use, heavy visitation, wilderness areas, overflights, oh. access. And so I got this firsthand look at um, all the policies and the natural resource issues. Um, so and there was a reckoning with how to use yeah. the park, who could access what, yeah. what should be excluded. So that was all bubbling to yeah. the surface in the, in the 90s. Yeah. Okay. And then because it was such a, a high-profile park, um, mm-hmm. Again, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon Those are, kind of, are the, kind of the battlegrounds right? for a lot of uh, environmental issues. Um, and I think Clinton announced the Escalante, the, the new yeah. parks from Grand Canyon. Yes, Isn't that and right? I was actually, mm-hmm. the irony is I was actually at that and organizing for the superintendent the event. And they came, and I, I can say this, that I got most of the calls and backlash to the um, designation of the Grand Staircase Escalante as a national monument. They did it from Grand Canyon, um, and there was a lot of controversy around how they did that. And so I just got this great firsthand look at it, and because a lot of people from D.C. were coming, I met a lot of people as well. So, um, And I am happy to say Bruce Babbitt's staff was mostly women, and I had never seen that. Wow. And so that his chief of staff and everybody in important positions, and that was really interesting for me because I hadn't seen that in my in coming up in the Park Service in particular. And so I was drawn both to that and then these policy battles. And the Grand Staircase Escalante, what happened there, really got me hooked that I wanted to work in a policy legal way on these issues kind of get Mm. underneath what was going on from the outside not just from within the park service which seems fascinating to me because you grew up in a park where you probably weren't aware or there wasn't even those kinds of controversies about yosemite or anything and then by the time you come back as young you are just swamped with it it's in the middle of big change yeah I just thought everybody loved parks. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. right. There's and no everybody issue. does love parks, but they have a lot mm, of disagreements do. about yes. how you do. Yeah, yes, that and that is because everybody loves parks. Yeah. but everybody sees them in such a different way. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's part of that. Yeah. yeah. So it certainly began. It's been an evolution since then. But I will say, I did end up working on the legislation to shepherd when I was in the Congress to shepherd. Um, the what's called the National Landscape Conservation System, which is the system for all the monuments now that are designated. And okay. so it was ironic to go from that first grand staircase to actually being in charge of the legislation to make 
Grand Staircase and other monuments, a system of lands akin to the national parks. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And, and a lot of this happened under the Antiquities Act? They designated under the Antiquities Act, and the idea of the legislation was to make sure they remained permanent mm-hmm. and not uh, just able to write it, any president. Not just an executive order, could that could be undone. Right. Could okay. undo that, right. Okay. right. Which has only recently become relevant. Yeah. Right, yes. right. So as you were you know, seeing all these things, participating in them, being part of this, seeing this policy enacted, you started thinking about pursuing a law degree. Yeah. And um, you did you did that. So right. what motivated you? Um, at that time, you, you did have a specific ideas about how the law could help advance conservation policy. And you were some, seeing some of these things in action, really, at, with your work at the um, Grand Canyon. So, mm-hmm. you know, tell us more about that. Tell us how you yeah. got into that what, and where that led you. Yeah, I had a chance to go up further in the Park Service, but I was really, uh, again, I think I was really excited about the people that I saw coming to the park uh, from D.C., the policies being um, the the policy making around that park, and I wanted to be a part of it from a, a legal point of view. And so I I really had a focus on going into natural resource and environmental law. Um, although my second year, I watched way too many criminal procedures, so I was like, maybe I'll do criminal Ooh, law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that would that that's kind all, of entertainment law. You in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I came to my senses. But um, but definitely that that time of having that front row seat at Grand Canyon and watching those issues play out, um, it absolutely drove me to want to work on public lands issues in the West, in particular. Um, but I definitely wanted to go to D.C. and and try and work on legislation to protect these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very interested in endangered species and critters. And um, and we weren't so aware necessarily of climate at the time, but just these the wilderness right. parks, monuments, mm-hmm. pieces, mm-hmm. protective um, areas. Okay. How did you get your foot in the door with, um, with the powers that be in D.C.? Through your uh, law degree, or was there... It, it, I actually had an interesting um, uh, lucky break in that I took a fellowship with a, another Vermont Law School alum, worked for Senator Cantwell from Washington. So I actually went on to the Judiciary Committee first in mm. the Senate side um, right after 9-11. So I got to mm-hmm. watch the Patriot Act go through that committee. And so I actually had this great, interesting completely different introduction. But you learned a lot about procedure, maybe, yeah. in this in yes. Congress. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, that still had some of the old lions of the Senate, um, um, Kennedy, mm-hmm. and... Uh, yeah, right. Um, or Orrin Hatch, who's still there. But there was... It was a, a sort of... We were watching an era as right. well. Right. And so, so I was there for a lot of interesting moments. and wow. uh, yeah. And got very lucky there. Um, and then from there was able to move um, into the issues that I really wanted to work on, um, although I was really lucky to have that moment. Nice. Yeah, nice. and that's so that was in the early two thousands. Yep. Okay. Right after yeah. right after I was you know, right after nine eleven. Right 9/11. after nine eleven. Wow. Yeah. And it was when the Senate was still split so just like right now okay. it was an interesting time because you could maybe make some coalitions and yeah they were really fast. working you yeah. know together in a very tense time yeah um with yeah. you know um, right after 9-11 and yeah with uh 
election ahead. There was it was an interesting time, mm-hmm. and everybody was worried, obviously, about security and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we were on right. the Judiciary Committee. So. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so as part of that, um, you were able to work on um, a policy initiative that we've talked about. And one of the ways I first got to know you because it had it was just getting passed and getting a lot of news. Um, when I first met you. So the, the greater sage-grouse conservation policies. And um, to be fair, I didn't really know a lot about the sage-grouse. <laughs> and I, I and have, I, go ahead. And I have to say, I don't know much about okay. the whole <laughs> sage-grouse situation. Well, so. my husband is an avid birder, and he would just be ashamed of me saying that. Everybody should Google sage-grouse yes. dance. Okay. Yeah, I did Sage that. Rebound. That was one of the first dance. things Laurel yes. told me to okay. do, and, and I was in love from there yeah. on. It is a an amazing, amazing, beautiful bird with this gigantic display, and then it dances to find a mate, and that's a whole other podcast. But, um, but this, what I want to get at is this was a fascinating process that you were involved in. It was a bird, the greater sage-grouse, was removed from the endangered species list in 2015, but habitat was still threatened um, in the West, various parts of the West, as it is for many other critters. Um, and so there was um, a new way of sort of building coalition and strategies to achieve protection that didn't necessarily come at the expense of rural landowners and, and other people who didn't want more restrictions put on right. their land. So tell, me, tell us a little bit about that, because I think this is one of those examples of a way forward, and you, mm-hmm. were, you were at the helm there with this. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and uh, fast forward, I had left Congress and was running what's called the Western Energy Project, which was a project of the Hewlett Foundation, which set out to do uh, large landscape level protections. So, um, but you know, you mentioned the Grand Staircase Escalante. That was very controversial, um, and and was for years and is still now. Right, very controversial. And is part of that because of the way it was the done. way it was done. All right. And, Who was uh, left out, maybe, yep. of the discussion? And that a lot of people didn't feel that they were at the table. And I think that's a fair criticism of it. It was done quickly, and so uh, a lot of what. You know, I learned from that, and then, you know, throughout my time in Congress was, you know, that you can do these things, but um, if you can, building those broader coalitions is better. And we had a very controversial issue with this uh, bird that we did call, though I'm going to hear from birders and everybody else like that. We called it the anxious chicken. It's a beautiful, beautiful bird, Um, but it gets super nervous when things are bigger than it, so it doesn't like oil and gas wells and okay. it actually doesn't like windmills either mm-hmm. so uh e- equal wow, opportunity so hater of energy bigger right. <laughs> it's yeah. bigger anything right. bigger infrastructure right. okay. and its habitat is lost due to you know cl- climate change and and development and everything that we're we know about that is challenging right now and so it was endangered but the idea of listing it meant that um a lot of things could be disrupted. And so we wanted to see if we could work together to build across 11 states plans to preserve its habitat. And in doing so, we just found common ground with a lot of people because uh, we talked about as the bird goes, so does the herd. So for hunters and anglers, keeping that habitat intact is important. And, you know, ranchers and farmers as well, traditionally uh, at odds with environmentalists, but uh, wanting to save their working lands, wanting to have certainty with how they manage the lands. So we found a lot of, of commonality there. We also engaged the recreation economy. They want to see healthy, thriving lands as well. 
So we worked just to build that broader coalition. And out of that came across the uh, 11 Western states, very strong plans and strong federal plans um, that are in place to this day. And it is seen as a model of how to build enough support that you can kind of keep these things moving ahead no matter who's in charge at the federal level um, because a lot of people are built in. Right. 11 Mm -hmm. states, were they having to pass legislation as well as federal legislation got passed? So it was kind of a quilt of different... Yes. It was was very challenging, and uh, I think it's safe to say that politically everybody didn't like each other. Mm -hmm. And so the states all had to pass plans, and then the federal government had to pass plans, and then the Fish and Wildlife Service had to decide if those plans were good enough um, to preserve the bird. Um, and then environmental groups had to decide if it was good enough or if they would sue. Oh, and so right, because there you was don't want lot. to pass all that and then yeah. have these lawsuits. And, um, and there was a lot of controversy. It was during the Obama administration, a lot of um, backlash. Um, but we really worked on the ground with local communities to try and bring everybody to the table on these plans, um, based actually on great success in the state of Wyoming, where they managed mm-hmm. to do that. Because they realized that it was in everybody's best interest um, to to keep the bird, you know, thriving or at least surviving in places, and to keep that habitat, it it was good for everybody's way of life out here. Right. There was right. something everyone could find mm-hmm. in it that was yeah. so a way not to pit people against each other. Yeah, but and the, you know the Obama administration, no matter what anybody thinks politically, they were very much invested in. Um, across the board, building support for a lot of these efforts. Um, Interesting. You were in a um, working for a private foundation that was able to achieve that with a variety of different governmental entities that you had to work with. So um, definitely a public-private kind of um, big partnership and coalition. Um, amazing, and I think it sets up a model for other ways to do things. Um, so before we move on, we just want to take a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM Bozeman. We are listening today with Laurel Angel about her background growing up in Yosemite National Park and the path that led her to her current research on America's conservation movement, specifically regarding missed opportunities that led it to become both exclusionary and politically polarizing. All right. Well, thanks, Laurel, again for being here with us to talk about this. And now we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about your research that you're doing right now at Montana State University, which is so exciting. And your current research is based on the premise that American ideals of preservation and conservation are failing and that we can no longer just set aside chunks of land or water as protected spaces that will stay unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. And that last line is from the National Park Service Organic Act of 1916. So that was what was um, what is said in that act. But you're not the only historian uh, or activists to call our attention to the fact that the conservation movement is really at a crossroads at this point in time and really at a crossroads in this last year, I would say, last couple of years. 
But for those of us um, getting up to speed like myself, I, I don't follow the conservation movement as much um, as probably Nancy does. I think you do more than I do. And of course, you, Laurel. But tell us about which ideals specifically are failing and what myths have been foundational to the notion of conservation as wild landscapes devoid of human encroachment. So um, thinking about these wild places, these these places as devoid of humans. Sort of the John Muir yeah, at Yeah, the Abbey John Muir kind of, yeah, at Abbey yeah. that we started with, you know, these yes. places that are, yeah, so. Yes, and um, if it's okay, I'll just back up really quickly because it'll get us there, but um, in the last few years of the Obama administration, uh, the president was very much committed to restoring um, stories of communities of color and indigenous through the Antiquities Act in particular and monuments. And so I was a part of an effort to um, work to facilitate um, thought leaders from communities of color, indigenous, tribal leaders coming together to really put on the table their stories um, and let because, me just interject for a minute because yeah. what you're saying is, for people who don't know, part of the Antiquities Act, which is very important, is it allows the president to set aside places that they can be natural places, but they can also be places where uh, right. heritage has happened. And so the idea was that we probably didn't have very many places right. set aside that represented important spaces right. for indigenous people, other people of color, African Americans. Mm -hmm. And that's something that could be done. It isn't about always taking big chunks of land out of the West. It can just be designating national landmarks and monuments yeah. um, as a way to preserve and recognize parts of our past yeah. history. Okay. And the 1906 Antiquities Act was, um, was intended, in theory, to protect cultural areas, but it had been used to put aside large tracts of land and didn't really talk about those stories. And so um, the Obama administration really used the Antiquities Act to um, restore stories. So Cesar Chavez, um, they did uh, Freedom Riders, um, um, they did uh, the... Um, they did the LBGTQ monument in New York City. I'm forgetting the name of it. Oh, right, where um, it was down um, in Stonewall. The, Stonewall. Stonewall. Yes, yeah, the yeah. Stonewall. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so this all happened under Obama. Yeah, and so he used the last few years to to really try and restore and use the Antiquities Act very deliberately to restore the stories that we hadn't been telling and to use the Antiquities Act um, to push the environmental groups to really think more broadly um, about engaging beyond sort of their idea of conservation, which was very much a colonial structure right, right. <laughs> um, and was, you know, brought from both privilege and that colonialism of drawing lines around places and excluding people to protect those places. And we can have a much more complicated conversation about that, and I've obviously simplified but the idea of conservation was, here's a park, here's a wilderness area, here's this. And largely those parks were predicated, and these areas were predicated on, on the removal of Indians. Mm -hmm. And so for the Obama administration to start to restore stories that had been erased was fairly significant. And in doing so, he really empowered 
a lot of different groups to start to engage in conservation. Um, and so that really got me thinking because, again, my early career would, was John Muir, right? Right, right. And so I never had anything to look at as much. And so I remember the first conversation I had was with Carolyn Finney, who wrote um, Black Faces, White Spaces. Oh, and she came to speak at MSU. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. Her Mm -hmm. book is amazing. And this was a group of thought leaders that were really pushing um, the conservation movement, environmental movement, to be less exclusive. It it is still and was a very um, middle-class, privileged white movement. And that's some of the ideas I'm interested in is how that happened. Um, but Carolyn, I said, uh, what is your vision for our public lands and stories? And she said, you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. Really? <laughs> wow. And so that was just a aha moment for me because I realized, you know, and I'm part of that movement, right? I've right. been working in that too. And I realized there were so many stories I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. And so I think that really did drive me to think about this as my dissertation. I'm not, I'm getting to the questions. But <laughs> no, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think um, it's such an interesting, what you're, what you're doing and, and what uh, I think you're part of a, a cadre of, of historians and activists and new voices that I think what we thought of as heritage, historic heritage preservation as being separate from environment right. and nature, mm-hmm. because this long-held idea that nature is not about humans, right. it's about protecting. Now you're saying there's this whole other way, and when we start talking about indigenous Americans, people of color, there's a very different way of thinking about landscape conservation, preservation spaces. Right. And very interesting the way you say under Obama there was this deliberate um, way to think differently yeah. about conservation and preservation yeah. um, that you then had a, um, a different turn and having those conversations with people who had never been asked yeah. what they thought okay so and that I will say that coincided with me coming here I moved here from BC and I wanted to get back into history I thought I wanted to teach and all those reasons but what I realized is once I came to the history department, and Billy Smith's class actually was the first sort of like, wow, things have really changed, and this is interesting. All of a sudden, I realized there was a whole set of materials for me to really think about and articulate what I was seeing was wrong, right? What Mm -hmm. I knew was starting to happen with the conservation movement, what I couldn't put words on, what I couldn't quite fathom. Now I walk into MSU with a set of people that are talking about these things very openly. And there's a real disconnect. But Mm -hmm. to have those conversations about race, removal, all those stories, all of a sudden I had this whole set of tools to really Very open with a a large group of people Mm -hmm. wanting to think, all these environmental historians and different groups. Me bringing just a background in archaeology and anthropology, I was fascinated to to delve into that as well. I feel like it was a a very um, eye-opening. Yeah conversations were happening at, at a very high level. And for me, what I thought was fascinating was there, but you also had that foot outside of academia in really looking at policy and in that world to see how that's going, um, how changes could be made on the ground. So your research for your dissertation covers a 100-year period you lay out between sort of 1916, which is the beginning of creating the Park Service as mm-hmm. we know it, 
When the National Park Service Organic Act was passed in 1916, it was an effort to finally fund a management of parks that had been created earlier with Yellowstone and Yosemite being these early ones, but there was no money behind it to figure out what is this thing and how do we fund it. So 1916, that's a, a beginning point for you and, you, and you sort of take it 100 years through 2016. Um, so starting there, what were those missed opportunities you want to explore that from the outside of creating the Park Service and all of that energy and um, excitement about the conservation and environmental movement sort of had its beginning at mm -hmm. that, that point. So who was left out during the establishment of the national parks um, or negatively, who was negatively impacted by that movement? Right. Yeah, we're looking at the Organic Act there. I am looking at the Organic Act and then, um, and that is really kind of coincides with the start of the conservation movement. John Muir does a lot of his thinking and writing around that time. So these are in motion together. And um, sort of a groundswell yeah. to be able to get all this yeah. passed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I thought about, you know, we were looking to say, how do we, uh, I wanted to start there and end with the Sunrise Movement, which is the cli climate young um young climate movement right now that thinks about race, equity, social, economics. Very so, new I, activists. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I got the go-ahead to do that. But I think we were starting to look at who was left out. So I, I started first with the um, with the Organic Act, and the I've been looking at the NAACP papers, like who's talking, were they talking about conservationists? We know W.E.B. Du Bois actually has a lot around conservation, but yeah. why were they left out? But... Um, Mark and my committee has had me sort of start to focus right now on the 1964 Wilderness Act and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mm. I think that is a fascinating uh, yeah. juncture mm -hmm. of yeah. what was going on and were, was there any relationship? So what are you finding? We're starting to, uh, we, <laughs> I keep saying we, I feel it's, like my committee are my people. So. <laughs> and I'm just telling them what to do. Yeah. <laughs> if only, if only that um, was how we got our PhD. Right, right. I am starting to look at essentially um, so you've got this progressive movement that at the time was led by a very charismatic um, conservationist named David Brower, who ran the Sierra Club. So I'm looking at the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society archives, as well as um, NAACP. We're starting to look at what the conversations, who, like, was the Sierra Club actually talking about the civil rights movement? What about the Red Power Movement? All of these things are happening at the same time. Such a dynamic yeah. period in our and history. And so what we know is that, that conservation has narrowed, mm -hmm. and, um, and it's become a white upper-class movement, and that's why it's having its reckoning now. We kind of thought, okay, it's, it's back here, but I think it's during this period of these social movements. And how come it, what happened? How did these conversations not happen with all these progressive movements? And what clues, and I'm still in the middle of it, but I think I think we are going to see some interesting things. And I think, and you have a landmark, iconic act being passed for conservation. The Wilderness Act is, you know, sacred, and yet it's problematic because it talks about, you know, places untrammeled, places untrammeled, and it, and you know, it thinks about and doesn't say this, but I mean, it's 
basically again about the removal of the people that were on the land. It, the act itself, the language yeah. in the act itself, has been held up to sound very beautiful right. and romantic and poetic, but, but actually it is an act of erasure. It, it, there are no places untrammeled by man. I mean, right. the new ice patch archaeology, every mm -hmm. time you, you talk to um, indigenous people and you talk to archaeologists, there, right. there are no places untrammeled. Yeah. Right. And so it's a fiction mm -hmm. that we've created in our minds that we could, as you said, draw a circle around yeah. a place. So that is going on at the same time you're saying this conversation may be driven or spurning on people like the Sierra Club. What is the demographics of who is in the Sierra Club? Who are those people? It's upper white, um, wealthier, mostly males. Mm -hmm. And same with the Wilderness Society. Mm -hmm. um, you don't see a lot of females in in any of the pieces. I mean, more sort of tokenized. So a gender and racial mm -hmm. yeah. sort of bias towards just white males. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think I'll probably get at the gender piece, too, at some point in time, oh, which okay. is very significant, certainly for, for myself, right. as somebody who didn't have anybody to look to growing up in the movement. Right. And so the question for me is, are they actively excluding, or is it that it just wasn't attracting because of the nature of what it is, any of any other broader groups, because their focus was so narrow and exclusive in and of itself. Um, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing for me. I'm, yeah, and, and I, I suppose you'll be uncovering. That's I think. Hopefully, I think that's a big question. I think there are signs that part of that was deliberate, and I think that's going to be uncomfortable. But mm -hmm. I think that's that's real, and you know. Um, and people who are fighting for their their equal rights to to vote mm -hmm. to enter spaces that were formerly segregated um, is there energy left over to worry about setting aside lands right. to be excluding humans right. in essence? You and this know? is and Billy Smith is on my committee, and I think this is a big question. But I mean, what's coming home right now is the access right now in a time of COVID to open space and mm. the environmental justice part of this, I think makes more important than ever just the ramifications of the segregation of this movement. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, uh, we are, you know, a lot of people are doing well because they have access to the outside and things like that. And that's been a big piece of the inequity right. um, is access. And that's the push on the conservation movement right now that's super uncomfortable is you know, the environmental justice, racial um, inequity. And yeah. I think, you know, I think it's very damaging that we narrowed uh, the movement so at that time. So do you think it was a little more open in 1916 and it narrowed in the 60s? Was, there a, was it a little broader coalition? Or do you think it started out very narrow and then continued on that path to be even more sort of elite and white? And male. I think it sort of definitely started out elite and and white and male. I think there was an opening there. Um, I think there could have been with the Park Service. There, I think I will see those missed opportunities. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think there was real opportunity there, not for indigenous. I don't think, but I think right. you know. And I think that's you know that's tackling all this piece. is going to be because mm -hmm. that's that is very. There's a lot going on here. Um, but I think you know I'll find that I think. I think with this 1960s period, you know, um, we'll see that those turns really undermined 
the work ultimately even even though in 1970 you see this slew of of laws iconic um, environmental laws clean water act endangered species clean air uh, national environmental policy act they have wild success but it continues to narrow and you know mm-hmm. what obama administration pushed the conservation movement is you know you're becoming more and more exclusive and i'm not going to be a president that does that right we're not narrowing down and drawing these lines around places. Uh, you or should around be broadening species the movement. and yeah. just pushing so yep. hard on particular issues yep. that weren't including the right. needs and the thoughts uh, of, right. of a broader coalition of right. people. Whether that be rural landowners or whether that be um, ag folks, yep. you know, and um, people of color. Yeah, uh, and that's an important part of it too, you know, and I think there's the. You know, what I've been pushed to look at, too, is the class piece. Yeah. Um, And so all of that is a lot, and I'm still doing the research, but I think I'll have to pick something at some point in time. So are you going to be talking to these people, Laurel? Are you going to have some oral history interviews within this? Is that kind of what you're going to start working on? Mm -hmm. I I know you've done a lot of research already, documentary research. but um, Uh, Slowly but surely on the the documentary documentary research but yeah. I um, I think one of the things that my experience has brought me is a lot of good networking and so um, I plan to you know start to do a series of interviews uh, Mark yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, I, uh, I right. plan to start to do um, we're talking Mark Fiji here yeah. so yeah. we're shouting out yeah. to just my Mark. committee chairman yes. just right. you know I'm maybe to we can enter yeah. this in as yeah. a footnote exactly right, right. there we go yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a big part of it and I'm excited about that yeah that part of it um, and I think I'm going to run into you know what I know from still being in the movement is there's there is a pushback right now on you know, wilderness is good. It's a great tool. We used it really well. But I think it's okay to say this was a tool of the past and we've got to open it up. But I think I am going to see a lot of people really struggling um, because, you know, they've been fighting for, for you know, lands and conservation. And and it's a, it'll mm-hmm. be a, a turn. So let me mm-hmm. let me um, reframe some of these questions yeah. so we, we get into more recent history, more recent past. Um, one pivotal thing that, you know, I read in graduate school that you read in graduate school was mm-hmm. William Cronin's The, yeah. the Trouble oh, yeah. with Wilderness. The Trouble with Wilderness. Yes. Right. And that's something you cite in your dissertation. And the idea is that wilderness is a cultural construct. It's not really, um, something that existed. And our ideas of what wilderness means, that words have changed from being this, this scary place where the devil roamed, you know biblical history to to this place that's untrammeled by man but also is a place where we find our true selves and it's this very you know kind of idea associated with the american west in particular mm-hmm. but in some ways with thoreau and that whole movement of um a, a sort of existentialist with uh, so i think there's this very interesting american history tied up in that but even today I'll, I'll be at dinner sometimes with a group of people and I will mistakenly say well yeah you know wilderness is a, is a cultural yeah. construct and I will get blank <laughs> stares and I'll I'll, yeah. I'll have to then backtrack and kind of pretend I didn't say that so so I, I see exactly what you're saying right so there's yeah. circles in which people have have read and thought and, and talked about that and have moved past about what do we do now 
and then there's not everybody. So moving on from that, you know, you talk about there, there is a big backlash today against climate change and against many broader environmental goals, which Amer Americans often see as job-killing policies, things that are damaging to the economy um, and a waste of natural resources that we should be using or extracting. Um, so you have this backlash against extractive economies, and then you have other people backlashing against the environmental controls that prohibit those extractions. Um, and this sentiment really seems to stretch back to the Reagan administration where it, it sort of coalesced and then it persists to the present. Um, you know, and in talking with with anybody, you know, it, it seems kind of weird. Everybody wants clean air and clean water, and everybody wants economic opportunities. Um, so when are we going to figure this out and get past <laughs> the polarizing rhetoric? I mean, I think this history that you're exploring can help us get past that rhetoric because maybe we can understand it in a different way, or we can understand how that polarizing rhetoric got formed. So I wondered if you could, if you could talk a little bit about that, and then how it maybe could point us to a, a, a way forward. You know? Yeah. Um, and for your dinner parties, I would say just quote Carolyn Finney, who said, "Let's just start with all the lands are stolen." Yes, that is a, is a beautiful <laughs> quote. That is sure go. to every make now me miss then, dessert. I'm yeah, sure that every yeah. now and then yeah. you, you put that down. And I actually did. Yeah. That's a good place just start to start to begin there. the yeah. conversation. And the thing yeah. is, it is in America. Yeah. It is. It mm -hmm. is this truth that I think you know a few other countries grapple mm -hmm. with Canada, South Africa, Australia, and, and how we how we deal with it yep. is fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Cronin got big pushback from the environmental he community did. for he that. Did. And, yeah. um, and, you know, and even a year ago, I was with somebody who used to run the Wilderness Society, and he's like, and Cronin was on the board, and he goes, yeah, well, we had him back off of that. <laughs> oh, interesting. And so, you know, huh. it's a scary concept. And I mm -hmm. think it's scary because of what you just asked me. So, I mean, we've been politically and, you know, for environmental issues, it's, and this goes way back. This is a class issue. This is how people were um, removed from the land, how we put these systems into place. It has set up this jobs versus the environment rhetoric. And it got really bad, like you said, in the Reagan administration, when they, which was a backlash to all the 1970s suite of laws. And the Sagebrush um, Rebellion. The Sagebrush Rebellion, which is alive here. and well today with Absolutely. the Bundys. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, and, and with, you know, some of the, the people that um, were part of the Capitol insurrection. And so, that is um, significant, and um, and it makes these issues volatile at times. Obviously, um, from the spotted owl controversy to Malher. Um, so, I, I mean, I think what is most interesting to me, and because of this conversation, is why certain groups did decide we've we've got to really broaden support for conservation because you still have a faction of conservationists and then environmental justice over here, and none of those work together. And so, they're, they're not aligned. They haven't mm -hmm. found a way to... No, and I think right now we're starting to see it. Okay. Um, so you're saying things have maybe really changed in the last yeah, year in particular. Uh, absolutely, with, you know, I think, you know, like most uh, social movements, but uh, the George Floyd murder had a real impact on a community that was already struggling with its history of, of um, racism and exclusion 
and white wealthy privilege. And uh, Michael Brune, who runs the Sierra Club about six months ago, uh, came out in an article and said, you know, let's recognize what John Muir was. Mm-hmm. Um, he himself was, would you call him a racist? That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> I, his writings, um, I think he, you know, uh, his, I think uh, things have been written here about John Muir, and I think we've been afraid to call him a racist. He's been um, on such a pedestal. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think everybody is afraid that if you do that, then you're going to lose sight of all that something these else will collapse. Yeah. And that, yeah. And I think it's, I think when Michael Brown All our was, heroes are flawed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no right, matter what right. hero you're talking about, mm-hmm. no matter which side of the political, they're all flawed. Yeah. And, and for sure, I think we're better off mm-hmm. telling the whole story and owning it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Dorsita Taylor wrote uh, She's her, amazing. she wrote this conservation history about, and really, really took it to John Muir on this. So it's mm-hmm. not that that was news to anybody. It's just really uncomfortable. And then for the, the guy who runs the Sierra Club to right. come out and say, mm-hmm. let's John Muir was, was the founder of the, of the Sierra, Sierra Club. I think it yeah. is news to people, though, still. It's not news to everybody. Well, yeah. But, right? to be, well, to be fair, it was, it was news. It, you know, I think the environmental movement was struggling with this because, one, it's, you're reckoning with that racism in the past. But two, they're politically afraid of what they're going to lose. Right. Mm -hmm. And at a time where they were under attack. So I think there was a lot going on. But to your question, unless we broaden support and unless we embrace and different ideas of conservation, different ways of doing this work, unless we make the movement more equitable, mm-hmm. we're going to continue in that fight. Right, right. And we're going to just continue to, to narrow and narrow. Right. Exactly. And, and have and it'll be this lost. narrow job versus yeah, environment. Because right. you're right, everybody cares about clean water and things like that. Yeah. But we haven't m- made that argument. And the only way we've made the argument over the past 10 years are to put the recreation economy against the extractive economy, mm-hmm. which uh, further that has... Pits exactly, yeah. and polarizes. And right. you end up in court all the time right. over all these things, which mm-hmm. is why you were saying, getting back to the sage grass, you wanted to create this patchwork quilt that didn't trigger a lot of um, backlash and court cases. Yeah. And that seems that's the only way to go forward. So... So conservation, you're saying, really has to broaden their umbrella to yeah. include a lot of different ideas yep. about... I mean, this gets at fundamentally what we think of nature. Mm-hmm. And what we right. Do we see it as something separate from ourselves? And then what's it, what's it for? And of course, this is going to include environmental justice because we have such a history of exclusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and already we're looking at, you know... Um, you know, over the past few years with wildfire, what is the Europe tribe doing? Like, we're basically like, oh, hey, that's some pretty good ideas. Yeah, let's, <laughs> and so let's look to them. By yeah. starting to, to stop holding on to this idea, this one structure of conservation, can we actually bring in new ideas? Mm-hmm. And then by embracing a climate movement that has been pushing the conservation movement to understand that environmental and environmental like climate change is not an environmental problem it's a race problem it's an equity problem it's an economic social problem it's all of those and that young movement has pushed an older movement to understand that they can't you know it's pushing them out of that comfort zone and it's pushing them to understand they cannot make inroads unless the movement and the laws and the ideas and the tools are more equitable and that's a good thing 
because I we can't do this right. in a narrow place. Otherwise, we end up in that same argument. Right. Mm -hmm. Have you been hearing about Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, which is all over right now? She's doing a book tour, and it was uh, her her amazing research and data showing that racist policies end up costing us more, literally, right. economically. And yeah. all the things we do want, clean yeah. air, clean water, right. safe healthcare system, all of those things could be achievable if we right. didn't have all these strange policies. And she talks about, back to your point about sort of the exclusions of nature, she, she recounts a story in Montgomery, Alabama of a, a beautiful big um, either city or county park that had a gigantic swimming pool and a zoo and all these associated open spaces but in the 1960s, when they had to integrate, mm -hmm. they drain and backfill right. the pool and bury it, and they sell off all the animals yep. because they don't. So so this idea that it's a zero-sum game, she's saying, yeah. is not how you go forward. And it seems the same with this these things about extraction versus recreation mm -hmm. or jobs versus the environment. We act like it's a zero-sum game. Right. Mm -hmm. And we, we write it that way. Yeah. But you sound hopeful. You sound hopeful that we have a, a way forward, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at uh, potentially seeing our first indigenous secretary of the interior. Right. Um, wow, that's right. Which I mean, is yeah. profound, mm -hmm. really. And she's amazing. And I think, yeah. you know... And so she's qualified and she's a symbol for right. something yeah. new. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, being in charge of the agency that... The Interior Department. Yeah, <laughs> it is in charge of the lands that right. were stolen. That were stolen. Um, and so I think... Yeah. And she has brought forward, as has this administration, um, both ideas of climate but also equity. It, they see an overlap, the conservation and environmental. They're bringing these ideas that a young movement has pushed them towards and that an older movement is reckoning with. And they're putting them into play right now. And so I think it'll be interesting to not have environmental justice over here and climate over here and conservation over here, but what does it look like if mm -hmm. we come together? And Deb Holland, who's the Interior Secretary nominee for this administration, has also made it clear that um, that she wants to look at ideas of co-management. Um, what does tribal um, management look like? Um, and that's scary for a lot of groups because, again, there's this idea of we've got this and we'd better hold on to it because it's mm -hmm. under threat. So I think there's going to be a lot of push, but I think it's good. Um, because it forces people to talk to each other yeah. more. Right. I mean, archaeologists had to go through this passing NAGPRA, yeah. and everyone thought yeah. it would be the end of the discipline. Right. And I think we've seen nothing but better and more interesting yeah. collaborations. And mm -hmm. we even now in Montana, we have... You know, the latest president of the MAS is yep. now the Crow um, exactly. Tipo, yeah. so mm -hmm. Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, who we also did podcast <laughs> Right. With. So, yay us. So, yeah, yeah, if my piece can make, I think my goal, one is curiosity. I think it's made me a stronger advocate, the work that I've done within the history department. Um, but I hope I can tell this story in a way that does bring to light, because I think it is okay to understand this and engage it, and I think if we can come to terms with that, we can actually take on saving this planet. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds goofy, but no. we've got real work to do, mm -hmm. and we can't do it if we're just narrowing all the time. If we're right? ignoring race and class yeah. and the way that they've been yeah. excluded, we're not going to get yep. there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and better understanding this history. Yeah. Yep. yeah, so thanks for doing this work, Laurel. I think it's so critically important right now, especially, 
And I have to say, you know, I grew up near a, a park, a national park as well. I grew up near Yellowstone National Yay. Park. I didn't, I didn't, I was more, I was not, I did not grow up inside the park like you did, but it was definitely in my backyard. And I grew up um, learning that there was no people historically that lived in the park, nor were there um, people ever, you know, historically in the park. Right. And so I'm so glad we're yeah. re- rewriting that history yeah. because, of course, that's completely wrong. Yeah. There was people in the park for thousands and thousands right. of years. Yep. And so um, our colleagues, Shane Doyle, Elaine Hale, Doug McDonald, um, just wrote an article about, or just um, were interviewed for an article about that in the Smithsonian Magazine, and and spoke very eloquently about that, about Yellowstone National Park. And um, Doug McDonald and Elaine Hale are archaeologists who have done all this amazing archaeology in the park, finding that people were, of course, living there for thousands of years. And um, Shane Doyle is a member of the Crow Nation. And of course, his oral history tells him that that the Crow people were there for, you know, thousands of, or have, you know, not 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 thousands and thousands of years, but for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so, you know, it's important that we rewrite this history, we better understand this history, and we move forward with new knowledge, and yeah. how we look at these, these places that are, are sacred to all of us. Yes. Yeah. And it changes how we, how we think about them. Yeah, I think, yeah. and what we do with them. Yeah, it, it does. And I feel hopeful for where the conservation movement is trying to go. And Good. It's, yeah. it's hard, and it's a generational and. Mm. Um, I think you really hit on that with that sunrise movement. My yeah. daughter is 16, and she's fierce, and I I see that in that generation. Yep. It's mm-hmm. wonderful to mm-hmm. see yeah. that energy and that feeling of, well, why can't we just get this done? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and just one really quick story. I ended up in a training the other day in my in my uh, job uh, of indigenous governments that a conservation group is doing um, with Native American colleges, and it was really an important shift. And they started out with having everybody do homework about uh, where they grew up and whose lands those were. Right. Nice. And what we know, too, is that nobody got a lot of the history. So not mm-hmm. only was it parks, but across the board. Oh, right, across, across the, the board. board. And so exactly. that was really interesting. Um, uh, and so I think I have a lot of hope there, and I definitely have to have hope for the planet right now because we got to do something. But I think right. dealing with these issues is great. Right. So thank you for this opportunity to be here today. Well, thanks, Laurel. Thanks. We're so glad that you came and, and sat with us. This has been a really fun and important look at this movement. Um, So um, thanks for taking the time. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again next time to find out more about the the Dirt dirt on the past. Past. If you're enjoying the Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.